0: great truth to you We thank you that you give men and women the talent to write music that's biblically sound lord that exalts you your son we see that in so much of our music lord We thank you for the men and women who lead us in that worship lord bless and continue to give them strength to study well and to know the word well so they can lead us well Lord, we thank you for a church that gathers to hear God's word. Though we enjoy to sing and spend time with each other, we're not here to be entertained. We're here to worship. We're here to know our God better. We're here to learn to live for him and find contentment in this life as we wait on the Lord and do it with great joy. Lord, we thank you for each and every one that are here, new and Oh, Lord, those who have been with us for many years and those who are just now joining us, Lord, we thank you that you promised that you build the church. And we thank you that that's not something we have to do. We don't have to use the pulpit in some way to grow the church. We can just preach the word, and you promise to build it. We thank you for each and one that are here, but also for those who are watching online. Some are sick and at home. Some can't get back, don't have the strength to come to church anymore. We ask that you would be with them. Thank you for our missionaries, Lord, so encouraged by many of them. They're holding fast and standing in difficult times, Lord. May we continue to give to see those works go forward. Now, Lord, we ask that your spirit be free to press the word upon our hearts today, that each and every one of us would come away challenged, encouraged, and ready to walk with you when we leave these doors. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, imagine the ministry of Paul five years or so before the writing of 1 Corinthians. He's in the southern churches of Galatia. There he's experiencing great fellowship. The gospel came. People believed it. They were enjoying fellowship. They were encouraged. Some of the apostles, like Peter, had come down. They might have even been having pulled pork sandwiches. And then the Judaizers showed up. And everything got difficult. Because they began to attack justification, the doctrine of justification. And it caused those members in the Galatian church to reconsider how one gets saved. Judaizers say, well, your Jesus is good. He did a lot of good things. He even died on a cross, but you need to keep these things. And so great stress came upon that church. Even Peter, who was hanging out with them, became a distraction, didn't he? And he needed to be rebuked by his brother Paul. And so there was difficult issues there. Things that were uh, pursued for superiority started to be a great stumbling block. And sides began to be drawn. Division was there and factions developed in that church. And Paul wrote his what we believe is possibly his very first letter... And one of his most strongest letters. As he tries to turn the hearts of the Galatian church back to Jesus Christ. One of those issues was circumcision among many that were trying to detract from the doctrine of justification. Circumcision had been in the forefront. It was doubtlessly pushed by the, the leaders of this Judaizers that came into there. That they would be more spiritual if they believed in Christ plus Being identified in the covenant of circumcision. And it drew great deep lines. And so Paul speaks to this often. Chapter 5, Galatians, of Galatians, we find where he's really charging them on this issue. He says that it was for freedom that Christ set us free. Right off the bat, Paul always speaks of freedom in Christ. Yes, we're slaves. We're going to see that today. We're slaves to Christ, but there's a freedom in that slavery. It's a paradox the world cannot understand, can it? But he says, look, for freedom, Christ set you free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to the yoke of slavery. So many people want to stick their head back into the yoke of slavery because they pursue spiritual superiority in some avenue. Paul says, Behold, I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision, Christ will be no benefit to you. In other words, if you think, if you do this one spiritual thing that you think will make you more superior, you don't have Christ. It's actually proving that you're not saved because faith comes through Christ alone. Grace comes through Christ alone. Salvation comes through Christ alone. And the moment you add something to it, you have what? Nothing. So Paul begs them to turn from these things. Verse 3 he says, And I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he is under obligation to keep the whole law. See, that's what happens with legalism. You find your little, little top ten you really like... <laughs> that make you look really good and superior to others. But yet, if you're going to keep the whole law, if you're going to find justification through the law, then you better keep every aspect of it. <laughs> and surely Paul is trying to show them that they are failures in that. Verse 4, you have been severed from Christ. <laughs> it's a strong language, isn't this? You want Christ plus something? You're severed from him this is why we're not in fellowship with other religions that teach some things about Jesus, but then add all these other things. We're not in fellowship with them. We're not in ministry with them. We're not in the same family. The Bible says if you add to what Christ has done, you're severed from him. You who are seeking to be justified by the law, you have fallen from grace. Certainly we know there's not... Such a thing as loss of salvation because once Christ saves us, we can't be lost. But if you've saved yourself and you have thought that you have attained grace because you've done all these things, you've certainly fallen from it. Verse 5, he goes on to say, We, through the Spirit, by faith, are waiting for the hope of righteousness. See, he's contrasting that. You put your righteousness in the things that you did. You thought you became righteousness because you chose this and you chose that. He said, no, our righteousness... with Jesus, and we wait for him, not on ourselves. Verse 6, for in Christ Jesus, neither, listen to this, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything, but faith working through love. There are several things that that statement tells us, is that Paul is severing ties to Judaism and to any other religion that says you can have Jesus plus these things. He's severing that means nothing. In fact, he says, the only thing that's important is faith that comes by the grace of God. It's a free gift. And it shows itself in love. Chapter 16, verse 15, he says almost the same thing as he finishes out this letter to the Southern Galatian churches. He says, for neither is circumcision anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. That's what you are. And so, you know, it's really freeing as elders and pastors to teach the gospel devoid of works. I would hate to have to come and stand in this pulpit and tell you about the great things of Jesus and then give you a list of things you should do. It'd be daunting. We are free to preach a gospel free of good works. That, now listen to this. That gospel causes us to be a new creation. And what is generated from that gospel, what's generated from that great faith and grace granted to us as a gift, is a new life that seeks to obey, and we'll see that in our text today, seeks to obey the commandments of God. Well, today, as you turn to 1 Corinthians 7, the text that Pastor Brian read, I want to highlight four things that the love of Christ. And understanding what he has done and understanding how he called you and how he assigned you to live this life will bring you contentment. And of sermon, content in our calling. Content in our calling. Number one, the glory glory of Christ empowers the believer to walk with him in all circumstances. Now notice in verse 17... The Bible says this, only as the Lord has assigned to each of you, as God has called each, in this manner let him walk, and so I direct all the churches. Now notice that word only right there, maybe your Bible might say nevertheless, that might be translated that. It's referring back to the preceding instruction, and the believer is is not bound. He's already said that if an unbeliever abandons that one, they they have an exception, and they're able to, to be free from that. But he's reminding us here, in this context here, that the exception is not the rule. Rather, one is is urged to stay in their current status in hopes that God will save that unbelieving spouse. That's the context here. And there's a greater context there. There's this pressure from these ascetic group within Corinth that are telling the the Corinthians, that if they change their status, their marital status or their singleness or whatever it may be, they could be more spiritual. So all of that is this context that Paul drops into a really new aspect of teaching us to remain as we are and trust God. Now, Paul's going to remind the reader and us that God has assigned each person Each believer, a gift. And even more importantly, God's called them in a certain assignment. He's given you roles in this life. And this assignment and calling point to the only imperative in verse verse 17 there. The imperative is the word walk, or your Bible might say lead there. The Greek word carries the idea, this walk or lead a life, carries the idea that our behavior and our conduct, the whole of our life, not just just our Sunday-ness, right? The whole of our life should display evidence of the power of, of the gospel. Now, Paul is teaching the Corinthians here that if they would walk or lead a life that is driven by the gospel, they are going to have a radically different-looking life. You think about this Corinth and the setting there, it'll be radical. And you start to think about what's going on now. In February 2022, the things that are going on around the world, things that are happening even in our own country, a Christian really should have a radical life. Radically different, isn't it? Our views on almost everything across the board is opposite of where the world is going. So he says, look, we need to walk this way. Now, Paul has always talked about this. Even in his first letter that we believe he wrote to the Galatians, we went a little farther in chapter 5, verse 16. He would say, but I say, walk in the spirit, and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. Paul is always concerned about our walks. Do our walks match the message we believe? It's 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 a great verse, isn't it? So many people come to you and say, man, I don't want to give in to the desires of my flesh. What are you walking according to? Where are you walking? What are you walking in? See, God has given us the word of God. He's given us a spirit and dwells us to highlight those truths so we know how and where to walk. Oh, brother or sister, if you're walking in sin or with people in sin, I promise you that's where you'll end up. The Bible says that we are to walk in the Spirit. Ephesians chapter 5, 1 through 2, he says, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. Walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave yourself imperative. Walk in love. Walk like Christ. Imitate God. Colossians chapter 1, verse 10, So that you walk in a manner worthy to the Lord, to please Him in all respects, bearing fruit, does our walk in the Lord bear fruit. Do we have a fruit-bearing life? Now, again, you could try to do all these things, try to add some spirituality, or you can let the gospel impact your walk. You can still be amazed at grace every day. You can still be overwhelmed that Jesus died for you. You You can be captured that God knew you before the foundations of the world, and you can let that motivate your walk, or you can just get a list of things and try to fulfill those. But that gets really tiresome. Paul wrote to the Thessalonica church. Some of you might say, well, come on, Scott, back off. I've been a Christian for a long time. I work in the nursery. I've done a stint in junior hires. A few tours down to the youth room. Get off my back. Paul says, look, I request you, I exhort of you in the Lord Jesus that you receive our instruction that you walk as you ought to, pleasing to God. And then he says this, that you excel still more. Running to the end is what Paul wants you to do. And what he's so concerned about in this text is what's stumbling people up from running to the end. Is they always get hooked up in some outward spiritual thing that causes them to think maybe they're going to gain some spirituality from it or somebody will think they're great. Now, let me break down verse 17. Look at this. I've kind of broke it down in my notes. First he says, each one, the Lord has an assignment. Then he says, each one, God has called. So therefore, according to the assignment and the calling, here's his conclusion. You can see it right in the text. Each person should walk in that assignment and that calling. Now that goes... Right there clearly in verse 17, you can see that. Now notice, the assignment, so what is that assignment? Well, this this would be a lot of what he's talking about, right? Singleness and marriage and divorce and widows and and so forth, right? These are relationships, but they're also circumstances that God saved you in. Where did he save you? What circumstance were you saved in? And so the concept of calling, assignment is relationship circumstances... The concept of calling refers to our conversion. That's when God supernaturally saved you. So he's bringing you to a timeline. When God saved you, what assignment did you have then? And so his conclusion is each person should walk in that assignment in that calling. Now, the context throughout this present passage that we're working on right here is with their social situations at the time of their calling. It's now to be seen that as which the Lord had assigned one of them. To understand, this is the assignment. Some were assigned. They were saved with an unbelieving spouse. Some were saved in their singleness. And we'll see in the text, even some were saved in slavery. And he's going to deal with that. He wants to help us learn from these illustrations. And both Christ and Paul have shown that there's exceptions given in marriage, right, for adultery, abandonment, and those things. But I believe Paul is going to teach us here that we're called people, we're called in unique situations, and that situation itself becomes God's sanctifying tool in our life. And here's the problem. I don't like the situation. (laughs) I want to be somewhere different. And so in essence, what he's doing is you're saying, God, I don't like your sanctifying tool. Choose another one. So God's wrong. He's getting after us, isn't he here? Now, notice it's God who calls. You see that in verse 17. Paul says, It is the Lord who assigns the place where you should live out your calling. So God calls, And then Paul says the Lord assigns that place, and this is where you to live out. And we know the Spirit gives gifts, and he gives fruit in your life. And so you see this real Trinitarian work in your life. He's he's at work in your life, believer. And it's clear that Paul's not striving to make this a law, right? He's trying to help the Corinthian believers see that their social status is ultimately less important, in a sense, as they live out their Christian life. And this is a huge hurdle for us in today, right? We may see our difficult circumstances, financial, um, employee, um, marital status, singleness. We may see those and we may concentrate on those so greatly that we downplay our salvation. Can that happen to us? Anybody ever overwhelmed in their circumstance and forgot what Jesus did for you? Everyone should wear their hand. You're a Christian. He's trying to get us through that, right? And so he wants our circumstances to be used for the glory of God. He wants us to see that even our circumstances are part of our genuine spirituality, how God does this. And he's even rebuking this false thinking that's coming out of Corinth, that if you change your social status, you can be more spiritual. So Paul is reminding them that they can do all things through Christ to strengthen them. That's what he's doing in this text. Did not want them to believe the fallacy that if I change my position, if I get out of this certain situation, I could be more spiritual. Now, when we talk about a salvific calling, we talk about the faithfulness that comes with it. And that's what biblical Christianity is. There's radical effects on our lives, on our relationships, and then how people see us in this world. If Christians aren't different in this world, we have failed, haven't we? If our view of marriage is the same as theirs, we have rejected God's word, haven't we? And we seem to be no different. If our view of this beautiful creation, this world that God has given us, is the same as theirs, there is no radical difference, is there? So think about the radicalness of a Christian. And that's what Paul saying. You're, you're, you're living in this cesspool called Corinth, and yet you look a lot like them. It's time to come out and be different. One more note, notice at the end of verse 17, he says, so I direct all the churches. And you say, well, where did he do this at? Where was this kind of passionate plea in all of the other ones? In fact, if you study, you really don't find this particularly charge in the other epistles, And I think there's a reason for that. I think what Paul is doing here is he's showing that their pursuit of some spiritual superiority has caused them, at least in their own minds, to set themselves apart from the rest of the churches. One of the things I love about traveling international and going and seeing our missionaries is when I get over there, no matter what the culture is, no matter what the language is, when I get around true children of God, they're just like me. It's incredible, and I love it, and i love to stand here in this pulpit and look at all of you. We're the same, because God saved us. And so when, when legalism makes its way in and the pursuit of spirituality above others, it should be obvious. And so what I think he's saying at the end of verse 17, he says, I think you're theologically off track you're not. Yeah, I, here's what. I, this is my opinion, but I think he's saying you're not like the rest of the churches because you have thought you've gained some superiority. And he's don't think that I don't teach this to others, but you are off track theologically. So I think the main purpose of the gospel is first and foremost to change individuals, not the culture and society. Reconstructionists in theology world think that if we get enough Christians saved, if we get a a saved president, if we get a saved senate, we can change the world. That's how God works. He doesn't work that way. He works individually. He saves people uniquely and gives them what? What? a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. So salvation is personal, it's individualistic, and it changes inward before it changes outward. So Paul is desiring these believers in Corinth to be satisfied where God assigned them, not to look to change that, be faithful in the conditions God called them in. That's how he changes the world. Through one person who comes to faith in Jesus Christ and says, God, I'm going to honor you in my circumstances. I'm going to glorify you where I am at till you change that. When we think about our occupations, we have such a testimony there. One of the aspects of our DTP for men, and I think it's in the women's one as well, we teach about the way God sets us as missionaries in this world. He saves you and he gives you an occupation. He, he sends you there. I've told many men, I'm not going to be climbing that power pole you're climbing on Monday morning. <laughs> God's sending you. That's your mission field. Those men in that truck, in that lunchroom, and wherever that may be. And so we learn to be content. But then you think about what is going on in Corinth. I mean, you've got prostitutes who are in the occult of the oracles of Delphi getting saved. <laughs> so we have to understand he's not sending them back to that, right? If you're in something illegal and sinful, you've got to get out of that when you're saved. Paul told the thief who, who steals in Ephesians 4.28, not to only not stop stealing, but to give back, right? So we're talking about our position of living holy lives because he is holy, and, and we're holy and blameless in our position. And God enla- he, he enables us to live legal occupations in this world. Point two. Self-righteousness will never create a worshipful heart of obedience. Look at verse 18 with me. Was any man called when he was already circumcised? He is not to become uncircumcised. Has anyone been called in Uncircumcision. He is not to be circumcised. Well, Paul's going to give several illustrations to remind people not to attempt to change their circumstances in order to gain this spiritual superiority here. And and first, Paul's first general principle here is, I, I think what he's doing here, and follow me along here, is he's identifying the difference between Jews and Gentiles. This is why he uses circumcised and uncircumcised. And again, the word call is this effectual calling of salvation. So Paul's saying, when, when a Jew is saved, he's using an illustration here, he's not try, he should not try to be like a Gentile. Well, but man, Christianity seems to have gone to the Gentiles, so I'm a Jew who got saved, so I better start acting like a Gentile. And, and then you kind of set this in this Greco-Roman world that... That in this early first century and beyond, and earlier than that, circumcision was mocked. Jews were ridiculed for their belief of being circumcised and their holding to this was a covenant obedience. Both Maccabees and Josephus record that during the Greek rule, which would have come after. The Medes and the Persians, almost forgot there. The Medes and Persians, then the Greek rule came. In that time, it, you, have a, you have a nation of Israel, it's under discipline, many still living pagan lives. There was said that many Jews sought to be accepted by the Greeks, and so they had surgeries performed, and they were called reverse circumcision, or to be decircumcised. There was a procedure from that. And you have to remember that most people did not have a bath in their house, so you went to public bath house. And some Jews were ashamed of their circumcision. And others just wanted to conform to the culture. So Judaism came out with a radical teaching, (laughs) trying to bring them back to to what they believed God wanted them to do. And that's where we found the term that comes out of their, their instruction, these rabbinical teachers, this rabbinical leadership, that uses the term uncircumcised, and that's where we think Paul's picking it up. Now, when the first century... You think about this, there's probably, maybe, I thought about this that there's Jewish Christians who think that I can demonstrate that I reject Judaism and I embrace Christianity by having this surgery done. Paul's, he has none of that, right? Remain as you are. Remain as you are. And I believe that the apostles' terminology. is is to be more taken figuratively here, right? The circumcised and the uncircumcised were common references for Jews and Gentiles. And we know that because even women were segregated by those terms, right? They're part of the circumcision. They're part of the non-circumcised, right? And so we understand that. So, So Paul here is reminding Christians that when you came to faith, don't give up your heritage. Now, why is that important? Because it's so important because it reminds us that God promises to save people from all walks of life. And I think that's beautiful. And I think it's important to recognize the diversity of the church. It brings us back to that Abrahamic promise, right? Uh, Genesis 12:3. God speaking to Abraham, talking about the seed that is in them, the seed who is going to come and be the savior of the world. And he'll be a blessing to all peoples. So I think Paul has a missional view on here. I love Isaiah 49.6. He says, there God, after talking about the judgment, he's going to pour out on the nation of Israel and who he's going to use to do that. And then he's going to judge them. And and, and yet he's in these great servant passages, but he reminds them that there's this Messiah coming. And he says, it's too small a thing just to save the tribes of Israel. But then, then there's a real important theological phrase. He said, I will also, I will also, and that tells us a lot of things. One, Christianity isn't replacement theology for Israel. God still has a plan to restore them. But he says, I will also, I will also save people from every tribe and tongue. He wants to people from all over the world. He says, to the ends of the earth, he wants to gather. And so Paul is teaching, not only are you Rejecting what God is doing, and you're not staying in your circumstance which God called you in because you think you're more superior if you change your social status, is you're rejecting the beautiful testimony that God loves to save people from every tribe and tongue. And we love that. John, in his vision of the end times, in Revelations 5 9, he sees the great song being sung by all the nations worthy are you who took the book and broke its seal and you were slain and you're purchased for God with your blood men from what every tribe tongue people and nations honestly when i was studying this this week my heart kind of leapt in my in my body when i think about this when i think that god loves to save floridians californians egyptians Africans. I mean, think about just in our own, our own group here. Some of you are from New York. <laughs> I have friends here from New York. See, God's plan of salvation crashes through racial divide, right? Everybody wants to talk about race. God, Jesus Christ just crashes through those racial walls, doesn't he? The gospel's not limited by culture. There's no language bearer. And there's nothing that unites God's people greater than the gospel. So no matter what your background is, your ethnicity, your economic status, or any other social issue, we become unified in the gospel. And Paul says, don't try to leave that. Embrace that ensignment that God has given you. One of the reasons we have an outreach to Middle Eastern people is because we have quite a few people in this church who God has saved, and they have a heart for that. And so the effects in our ministry is because those men have embraced where God has put them. Those women, they embrace where God has put them, and they care about the lost in their families and in their neighbors. And so they witness. So Paul says to the Gentiles, looking into verse 18, has anyone been called in uncircumcision? He is not to be circumcised. Gentiles who become Christians are not to become Jews. It's why we struggle a little bit with some of the messianic stuff that goes on. And I know I'm going to get an email, send it to Brian. Um <laughs> God called you as an American. Be a Christian right here. Don't try to embrace something else that God has not assigned to you. Married, single, Floridian, New Yorker, whatever it is, God's assigned that to you. That's where he's called you. Live out that calling in that beautiful realm. And so Paul reminds him, remain as you are, remain as you are over and over in this passage. Now, interesting enough, in this section, Paul has given exceptions for singleness and marriage. There's divorces allowed with adultery and abandonment, and those things are exceptions. But in this section, there seems to be very little, if not any, exceptions. And that's because the obvious reason is this is not simply sociological, this is theological. Our our theology transcends our, our circumstances. And so we embrace one another no matter what our background is. It's because Christ has put us together as one. Now Paul understood, listen, he understood the experience of grace. He saw it firsthand as God knocks him off his steed on the road to Damascus and grants him faith, right? He knew that a saving faith was granted to him apart from his circumcision, him of all people, right? You see his list in Philippians. Circumcised on the eighth day, Hebrew of Hebrews, You know he's a poster boy of this stuff, but he he embraces his faith in that situation. And Paul had such a burden for the Jews. Read the beginning of Romans nine and ten and eleven. See how he says, "I would if it would be possible, I would give my own salvation for their faith." He loved them. He was almost murdered many times by them, and kept going back to them. He embraced what God had given. Paul had always been unyielding when it came to the truth of the salvation. And to mark faith by circumstance was really to defile salvation by grace. He would not let that happen. He's the one who wrote by the inspiration of, of God and the Spirit. For by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not of yourself, it's a gift of God, lest anyone, lest, uh, or uh, not a result of works, so that anyone will boast. And then he says this, and this is what I was after. For we, we are his workmanship. Assignment. You're his workmanship. He put you in that marriage. He put you in that situation. He he put you in that employment or employer. He put you there. Live out that grace. Look at verse 19. What a statement. Circumcision is nothing. Uncircumcision is nothing. But what matters is the keeping of the commandments. Here Paul just makes this bold and emphatic statement. You don't have to know Greek to know that that's emphatic, right? It's nothing. It's nothing. He's experienced this in Southern Galatia, right? Encountered that works righteousness, that damning view, that Christ plus something, and he comes out of his boots in that passages because he knows what it does. He knows it rejects the grace of God. But now he's dealing, think about it, he's dealing predominantly, I would imagine, with a, a strongly heavy Gentile church in Corinth. And so circumcision or uncircumcision most likely is not as significant, but but I think what, as I thought about this, I, I thought about the horrors that Paul's Jewish friends would have thought when he said this. I mean, for a Jew, works righteousness of circumcision was everything. And above all, it was a sign of a covenant that you were in the covenant. So Paul says it's nothing. See, Paul knew the implications of what he was going to say, he knew that the Judaizers would hate him for it, but he knew it was the only hope for them to come to saving faith. Nobody comes to saving faith who doesn't leave everything behind. You don't get in. You don't come through the narrow gate. You don't drag your suitcase through the turnstiles at Disney. (laughs) It won't go through. Strollers this way. Same. Same with coming to salvation. You don't come to and say, "Hey, Lord, while I'm coming through the gate, you should know I've done this, this, and this. And by the way, I'm from these people." It's a narrow gate. Few find it. You know why few find it? Because they have a whole suitcase of stuff that they want to show God what they have done, and then they end up in another door. So Paul's point is, he's saying, look, circumcision is nothing, marriage is nothing, celibacy is nothing, singleness is nothing, and so forth. Because all of that has nothing to do with the gospel and the saving grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Those are the circumstances and of where you live out the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, brothers and sisters, we must stop and think here. Is there some self-righteousness still in us? What little spiritual hill do we like to die on that's unnecessary? We've got to work through that. Now certainly, there are very important spiritual hills that we should die on. But legalism starts when we try and die on ones that aren't necessary. And so you've got to think about this. Has politics just ravaged your joy these last few years? Ow, Start with that one, Scott. I mean, so what is it? See, I, I think we have to stop, and we just can't say, oh, those Corinthians, they, they just need to figure that out. <laughs> what is it in your life? What little spiritual hobby horse do you like to protect? Don't come near my hobby horse. See, we have those, and Paul's challenging us. But notice right at the end of the verse, in verse 19, he adds this little ditty. But whatever matters matters. The only thing that matters is the keeping of the commandments of God. So what matters is not the social condition God saved you in, but what matters is obeying him, right? Now think again about his Jewish friends when they heard this. They would first say, you're driving us crazy because circumcision is everything to us, and you say it's nothing. And then we're about ready to lose our minds when you say to obey the commandments because we see them as the same, and Paul separates them. And so from their perspective, they're going... You're crazy, Paul. That's how we identify ourselves with God. And Paul says, no, that pollutes the purity of the gospel. And so he says, it's nothing. But we obey the Lord. And I hate what the Lord. what Paul's saying. He said, Paul considers obedience to God's commands as the proper worshipful response to grace. He does not see that as works of the law. He sees it as the proper response to the grace of God. Husbands, love your wife as Christ loves the church. We respond to that by the grace of God, bending the knee to ask God to help us husbands be that because Jesus died for us and shed his grace in our life. We love one another. We love one another without hypocrisy, the Bible says. We know we can't do it on our own, but the grace that God supplied that saved us gives us grace to live those commands out. And so grace is driving this. And the problem is, today's church, obedience has degenerated into some kind of antinomious type of view, right? And so it's grace, grace, live any way you want. And you think that's new. Paul writes in Romans chapter 6 the same thing. You know, what should we say? Should we just continue in sin that grace may abound? So it's always been a problem. There's always been abuse of grace. That's one of the things that Judaizers had against them. Oh, you got this whole, you're just given this Jesus alone thing. Everybody's going to abuse everything else. But Paul knew, and we know, that when grace grips your life, sin becomes ugly. It becomes something you don't want in your life. And you may not think about grace for a while and live in some sin, but the moment you go back to the cross, the moment you go back to grace, if you're a true Christian, it pricks your heart, it pricks your mind. You go, oh God, I don't want to live that way. I want to live for you. Am I right? See, this is what Paul's after. He wants them to get in the fight and live for Jesus, not for some, some social status. Third thought. In Christ, we have unity and equality despite extreme social conditions. Look at verse 20 with me. Each man may, must remain in his condition in which he was called. Well, the first analogy is given here, and he now, he's already given that analogy of circumcision. Now he's turning to back to kind of his original argument, stay as you are. And he wants each person to live out their Christianity, their calling in Christ, in their social condition, where where they will, in in a way, um, magnify Christ in that situation that God called them in. So where God called you, live out that life. And he doesn't want them to seek to change that position unless God grants that exception. So remember, that's the emphasis as we go in. So, So remain as you are. Now, look at the second supporting illustration he gives in 21. Were you called while slave? Do not worry about it. For if you are able also to become free, rather do that. Verse twenty-two: For he who was called in the Lord while a slave is in the Lord's free is the Lord's freeman. Likewise, he who was called while free is Christ's slave. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. Verse twenty-four: Remain as you are. So when we looked at the first pattern of the verse there in verse 18, you saw he says to the circumcised, to the Jew, don't change. Then he says to the uncircumcised, the Gentile, don't change. Then in verse 19, he gives the reason, because it profits nothing. And then he gives the conclusion he says, remain as you are. Now he moves to the second illustration. He says to the slave, don't worry, verse 21. He gives an exception, somewhat of an exception, says, but if you find your freedom, if you grant your freedom, take it. The reason why he says to remain as you are, don't worry as a slave, because you're free in Christ, verse 22. Then, notice he turns to the free person. Be a slave to Christ, at the end of verse 22. So you can see how he's he's setting this up. It's all exactly the same. Be a slave to Christ. The reason? Because just like the slave... The free were bought with the blood of Jesus Christ. Both belong to him. And the conclusion is, remain as you are. Serve God in that situation. Now notice in verse 21 that Paul commands the slave to remain as they are, but don't worry. And I think this is similar to what he's been teaching to the singled and the married. You know what he's talking about is contentment. Oh, the C word. It's a problem with this, isn't it? Being content. So he's challenging us to say, God, give me contentment in my situation. And what he's doing is he's using something very radical called slavery to help us who are not slaves to go, wow, he just told slaves to be content. And I'm over here not happy with my merit part, marital partner. See, he's using an illustration to teach us that anyone in any circumstance who belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ can find contentment if we will lay down our own self-righteousness. Now, the Christians to learn from this position of the slave, he can't change it. Now, he may have an out at some time, but, but because doubtlessly this person possibly sold himself to the slavery most of that is the idea that indentured uh, servanthood here. They're not to worry. They're in that position. They can't change it. They're not to worry. They're to be content and glorify Christ in that position. So don't let your social condition overwhelm you. Ask God for peace that passes all understanding and accept where God has you. He may change it, but accept it. And take the transforming work of Christ, then allow that a calling to be lived out in that assignment. We all have assignments here. Are we living it out? Now, notice in verse 22, he says, Were you called while slave? Excuse me, verse 22. Were you called in the Lord while, while a slave is the Lord's freeman? So the, the slave is free in the Lord. And then notice verse, the rest of the verse. Likewise, he who was called while free is Christ's slave. Now, <laughs> what I want you to get from this verse is the statement of equality. I know I know if the world 's listening to this, you' go, "Wait a minute, how can that be equality? Well, this is what God teaches. He teaches that both a slave and a free person are equal in the Lord Jesus Christ, right? And so he puts this little adverb in there. Notice this little adverb, likewise. Look at it in your text. This verb this adverb is very important, and what it does is it connects similarities. It highlights the nature of both, right? The same kind of both. It, It marks the resemblance of one another. And so the slave is free in Christ. The free are slaves to Christ. Both are eternally positioned in Christ, though their social condition is extreme. That's what he's telling them. Who could do that? Who in the world could take two extremes, a free person and a slave person, and say that they're unified and they're equal in in a deity, in a person? Of Jesus Christ. See, that's what the gospel does. The gospel causes us to be equal. When Jesus says, "Many will; those who are first will be; those who will be last will be first, and so forth," and he reverses it. Most people think that's some kind of potluck thing, right? Well, my whole life I waited till everyone went, and then in heaven I'll be first. Well, what kind of exit Jesus is that? That verse is a statement of equality. The last or first, the first is last. We're all equal. We all come into the presence of God. There's not a long line and you're at the end, Mr. Holier-than-thou. We're all his children. We sit at his table. We feast as co-heirs of Jesus Christ. See, when you have this mindset, as Corinth has, that I can gain some spiritual superiority before what I do, you look down at other people, y'all. There'll be a long line behind me. I worked in nursery for 30 years. <laughs> Maybe you will be. I don't know. Blessings if you did that. This is a statement of equality here in, in verse 22. For he who was called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freeman. Likewise, he who was called while free is Christ's slave. We're all free and we're all Christ's slaves. That's the marking of a believer. So listen, if you're here today and you feel insignificant, that's not what Scripture says. You are not insignificant. Or on the other pet. The other spectrum, maybe you're here today and you think you're superior for some reason. That's not what the Bible says. Or maybe you're just here in an apathetic way, right? Well, the Bible says he spews out lukewarm people. (laughs) No, no. The Bible says we're equal. And maybe one of the most abused verse by the prosperity gospel and others who take the gospel to use it as their means is Galatians 3.28. It says there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. You are all one in Christ. Now God certainly gives us different roles to bring him unique glory but there is equality and unity in Christ. And that's why we preach him so passionately and so thoroughly through the word of God because it brings us together. And we forgive one another. We love one another. We have passion for one another. We care about the things we do for Jesus because we are our brothers and sisters. Last thought. The blood of Christ not only paid for our salvation, but it also paid for your contentment or our contentment. Look at verses 23 through 24. You know these verses. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. Brethren, each one is to remain with God in that condition in which he was called Look, when we focus on our true spiritual freedom in Christ, no matter what our conditions are, in our marriages or singleness or employment or economic status, when we understand that, we now have a right perspective of how to live with an attitude of worship. We're not judgmental. We're we're grace. We we, we err on grace even. We're, We're gracious with one another because we understand that's my brother and my sister. I don't want to offend them. I want to live for Jesus and let that affect those around us. And so whether you're physically bound or free in this text, single or married, the only thing that matters is that we are forever, all of us, slaves of Christ and free to worship him. And again, that is a great paradox to the world. I am a slave to Jesus Christ. I proudly say that. Drive the all in my ear. I am a lifer. Are you? That's what we are. And our day of jubilee is when the Lord Jesus comes back and gathers his bride and takes us to be home with him forever. And and then we'll be free from some of the restraints that we have in this world. But brothers and sisters, you cannot be more free if you're saved today. You're free in Christ to serve him. We quickly have to deal with this term, slaves of men. That was not an accident put in there. And that's what happens. That's exactly what was going on with this ascetic group in Corinth. They were bringing people, shackling Christians back into slavery. Same thing they did in Galatia. Oh, you can believe in your Jesus, but you better do this, this, and that. Paul says, don't be slaves of men. We see this all the time. We get phone calls or loved ones call us or friends around the country. We had one this week where somebody calls and said, my child is going to this prosperity gospel church. They're caught in this stuff. What do I do? You know what they're saying? My child has become a slave of men, not a slave of Jesus. Can you pray for us? Can you help us? See, this happens all the time. And look, Jesus' blood has to be precious to us and not abused. Jesus' blood, his precious blood, as 1 Peter 1, verse 19 says, was, was given for our sakes so we can be free. Oh, don't put yourself back under the yoke of slavery. Know that Jesus is, Bought you. Do you believe in the power of Christ? Do you believe that he can change your life? Do you believe in the authority, the inspiration, the power of the word of God? Do you believe that the spirit indwells you, brothers and sisters? Then we ought to be able, and it might be a process, but we ought to be able to live joyfully in this life. Some of you have difficult circumstances and we pray for you often. But I beg you, do not look across the fence. There is not greener pastures in the Christian life. That's a danger. Accept where God has you, who he has you with, what he has you doing, where your status is. Say, God, right here, cause me to live for you right now. I'm a child in somebody's home. You're not going to be a better Christian when you get out of the home oh, I'm single. And if I get married, I'll be a better Christian. That's not going to happen. <laughs> Live for Jesus now. Right in your circumstances and see what he does. He'll do amazing things. Father, thank you for this time in the word. These are challenging passages. They're challenging illustrations, especially in the world's culture today. You teach that a slave can be just as content as a free person in Jesus Christ. That's a complete paradox to the world. But we understand it because we're your slaves. We love you as our master. And we want to line up and do what you tell us to do because you have been so gracious to us. And so we pray, Lord, that in our condition, our social conditions, whatever they may be, that we would be content To live as God has us now. And Lord, you have the right to change our our social status. You can do that, Lord. You can take spouses home and make us widows or widowers. You can marry off single. And yet, Lord, we must learn to live in contentment where we're at. And that can only come through the precious gospel of Jesus Christ. So, Lord, help us in those areas. We need help. We're but flesh and we're even but dust, Lord. And so, Lord, we ask that you would help us be a church that accepts our positions where God has given us and live for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.